Well, good morning. It's a real joy and privilege to be with you this morning to worship the Lord together on the Lord's Day to open the Word of God. I pray that you came prepared to hear from the Lord and study the Scriptures with us. So it's a great joy for me to do that. We're going to be continuing in our series in Exodus. If you have been with us, you know where we are. If this is your first time, welcome. Uh, But we are going to be in Exodus chapter 17. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you do not have a Bible, there are some in the back on that little bookcase, I think at the bottom. You're welcome to use those if necessary. Uh, But Exodus 17, as we continue in the wilderness narrative, we encounter a powerful and potent section dealing with Uh, the Israelite nation and their response and ultimate faithlessness to their covenant-keeping God in Exodus 17. So I've entitled this message, The Grace of Christ for Faithless Grumblers. The Grace of Christ for Faithless Grumblers. So if you would, stand with me. We only have seven verses. We'll read all seven together. We'll be going down from one through seven. As we read the word of the Lord, it says, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. You shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? You may be seated. Let's pray. Well, Father God, as we come into your house, we recognize that often we find ourselves like your people. We often find ourselves in this predicament that they find themselves in, and often we have, sadly, a similar reaction. Father, Lord, let it not be so of us. Let us, by the grace of Christ and the mercy offered through the atonement, be a different kind of people, be a generation not like the generation in the wilderness. Father, rescue us from that plight. Rescue us from their unbelief. Put us aright. Make us right. And do it all for your glory. And we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to this chapter, we have been, of course, journeying, as it were, with the Israelites through the wilderness as they have, not that long ago, left their bondage in Egypt behind, left the chains of slavery and servitude under Pharaoh, and they have journeyed not very long outside of Egypt. And they have journeyed, as it were, into what 
geographically we would describe as the Sinai Peninsula, this triangular-looking peninsula uh, you know, bordered on both sides by water, uh, the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aqaba, and uh, akin to, of course, Africa there. And uh, they've been journeying into the desert. And as we mentioned uh, maybe a few weeks back, it really was only a two-week trip on foot for over a half a million people or more, probably much more than that actually, uh, maybe a million and a half people on foot to go into the promised land of Canaan. Though occupied uh, and bordered by the land of the Philistines, it was not a long trip in comparison to the 40 years that they would spend wandering the wilderness of the Sinai Peninsula in ultimate disobedience to God. And this wanderings in the wilderness really um, is such a metaphor for the type of wanderings that can accompany the people of God in a place, in an environment in which faithlessness marks them. Faithlessness marks them. And here we see in the narrative of Exodus chapter 17 a progressive revelation, as it were, of their true character. As God said to them only a chapter and a half ago at the waters of Marah, he said to them that, he tested them there and said that he would have a statute for them. Let me read it to you in uh, Exodus uh, 16, using a different Bible than I normally use. And it said to them, um, and the Lord commanded, uh, no, that's not it. Sorry, forgive me as I'm looking for it right now. The Lord made them an ordinance and tested them there. It says in verse, chapter 15, verse 26. If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, he said, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. The Lord made a promise to them that if they would keep his word and that they, as they journeyed into the wilderness, if they would keep his statutes, that he would take care of them, that he would literally heal them. He would be their healer. Uh, and he proved that again to them as they journeyed a little bit further. And as we saw Pastor Dave preach last week, the bread from heaven, the manna, came to them as they had this craving for meat. And God says, I will, I will give it to you. I will give you more than you can handle, but this is the way in which you will gather it one day at a time, and you will gather twice as much on Saturday, and you will rest on Sunday. And, of course, the people did not obey that. They went out to gather on Sunday, and the Lord corrected them and uh, proved to them that he was ultimately going to feed them, to take care of them. And, and of course, we know that Jesus himself in John chapter 6, the Gospel of John, declared to his own people that I am the bread of heaven. If you eat for me, you will live forever, not like your fathers ate in the wilderness and died. So we have these, this, this ongoing care that God gives his people. And then, of course, here in chapter 17, it continues on, and it's test number three, that they will ultimately fail. And it's quite tragic as we see this play out again and again. Uh, throughout the wanderings in the wilderness. But the essential lesson that we have before us today is quite simple. And it's this. Will we trust the Lord or test the Lord? Will we trust the Lord or test the Lord? I'm reminded of the great hymn, 
tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, and just to know, thus saith the Lord. Says Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how have proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. That is my prayer for us this morning, that as we look at Exodus 17, we're going to see three things. And we're going to see first, that the people camped at God's command. Secondly, we see that they quarrel with God's servant. And thirdly, they are consumed, or they consume in thankless unbelief. Three main events are happening in this short seven verses. Again, they camped at God's command, they quarrel with God's servant, and they are consuming in thankless unbelief. And we're going to see the significance of all three of these things. But as we pick up here in verse 1, as we read, it says, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. This is fascinating because what would seem like a rather straightforward narrative of their journeying from one place to another and arriving at said place, Rephidim, and not having any water to drink. It would seem on the surface that, okay, well, that, that's somewhat helpful. It just sort of gives us a geographical location for the Israelite people. But there's a lot more going on in verse 1. It's a very pregnant verse, if you will. Uh, it's kind of exploding in multitudes of themes. And I want to unpack it a little bit because it's very important that we see why it's significant that they camp at God's command. First, it's significant because God is leading them the whole time. That as they are journeying from one discontentment to another, the Lord is not stopped leading his people. Let us be reminded that the Lord is going before them, if that wasn't enough information, with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So they have a visible, almost tangible demonstration of God's parental sovereign care over them. And if that wasn't enough, he demonstrated to them at Marah that he was going to care for them. He demonstrated that, that with the bread from heaven, the manna, that he would care for them. And now round three, because they didn't learn the lesson the first time, God brings them to another place where it would appear, appear to be without water, to be a barren place. And I find it so significant that the real issue that the people of Israel had was not so much, and I want you to catch this, the water problem. That was the surface issue. The real issue the people of Israel were dealing with was a pace problem. They were frustrated at how the Lord was leading them forward. I want you to catch that. Because it says that they moved on from the wilderness by stages, meaning progressively, little bit by little bit, step by step. Now, that would seem wonderful to us who walk by faith. But to those who walk by sight, going forth in stages seems like a gigantic waste of time. Why are we not moving ahead? Why do we keep stopping and starting? Why do we keep setting up camp and disassembling camp? How come God is taking his sweet time? And what this does in the hearts of rebellious people is it creates a thirst issue. It creates an existential issue where the water problem is not really the issue. That's just the thing that they make a big deal. Now, it was clear, and we're not making more of it than it is, 
there was a lack of water there. And that was on the surface a real problem. But the real problem is that they were discontent with the pace that God had for them. They were dissatisfied with God's leading because remember, they were fully aware and coherent of the fact that the Lord was leading them by his word. They were not wandering aimlessly. They were not sort of losing themselves in the wilderness and arriving at a place with no water. They were there intentionally. They were not there at random. And I think often in our lives, the issue in our hearts is the unholy discontent with the ways of God, the words of God, and the pace of God in how he leads us. That is often the undergirding issue, the motivational issue and problem that we have with God, and we make all the surface things the issue to deflect the fact that we're really dissatisfied with the pace that God is leading us. And I don't know if that resonates with you, it resonates with me, that we are an impatient people. We want to get from point A to point Z tomorrow. We want to know exactly why God is leading us, how he's leading us, where he's leading us, and when he will get there. And like our children in the car, before we even start the journey, we want to know how long it's going to take. We want to get there tomorrow. And this is the undercurrent problem that plagues this faithless generation the entire 40 years. That they were a people rebellious in their hearts. In Psalm 106, verse 13 and 14, is very illuminating in this light. For it says of this generation at this particular moment in Psalm 106, but they soon forgot his works. They did not, notice this, wait for his counsel. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to test, to the test in the desert. So what did they do? They soon forgot his works and they did not wait for his counsel. They were impatient. They were hasty. And what this hastiness does is it creates a thirst. It creates this insatiable desire to have immediate solutions to my immediate problem. And I don't know about you, but that, that's something that I deal with quite a bit. That as I journey with the Lord, as I trust the Lord by faith, I'm encountering often in my life dry spots, places without water, places without refreshment, places without nourishment. And I say, Lord, clearly you have led me to this point, but why here? Why now? This seems to be a rather huge problem for them, that they're always being led by the Lord into places with no water. But if they were full of faith, they would recognize that, no, our God has been here before. We have been here before. And how about you? If you've walked with the Lord for any length of time, you have certainly been through dry seasons, dry spells, situations in your life where maybe your devotional life is not as robust as you want it to be. Maybe your prayer life feels like the ceiling is over you and things are bouncing right back. And maybe your, your, your worship feels a little flat and your, your zeal doesn't seem to be really stoked. And, and sometimes there's real sin there at the root of all of that, as we see here in the text. But sometimes God just sovereignly brings you to a place where there's no water. The Lord is leading you there. His word has led you to that spot. And we don't like it, so we create a problem. We find reasons to blame God. We find reasons to say, Lord, look, there's no water here. What are you doing? And this is exactly what the Israelites are doing in verse 1. They're not just merely randomly arriving at Rephidim and encountering uh, with just pure bad luck the fact that there's no water in this barren place. They are here by the hand of God. And, and brothers and sisters, you are where you are by the hand of God. 
you are where you are because God loves you, God cares for you, God knows better than you, and he's bringing you somewhere through it. The question is, will you test the Lord or trust the Lord? That is always the recurrent issue in our hearts. So the, the issue is not the water. The issue is the heart. The issue is, will you trust the Lord? James 4 is very enlightening in the New Testament. The letter, Jesus' brother, James, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, he says and poses a rhetorical question. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and could not obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have, he says, because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you act wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. This perfectly reflects, sadly, this generation here in Exodus 17, but often it reflects our own hearts. We, we are often finding ourselves at war with things, and we have to reflect and say, well, really, I'm not at war with the thing. I'm at war with the Lord. And, and, and brothers and sisters, that's not a good place to be, be at war with God, because he always wins, number one. Secondly, it puts you in a terrible position. It's much better to submit yourself under the hand of God, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and, and it says later in the chapter, he will exalt you at the proper time. And in our lives, we are often like the Israelites, journeying by stages by the command of the Lord, and we get to a place, and it's dry, and it's weary, and it's barren, and you may be in that season right now, and you're thirsty, and you're needing something to satisfy you, and if you're not full of faith, you will turn to something, and you will blame something. If it's not the Lord, it's something else, or it's somebody else, or it's the job, or the spouse, or the boss, or the situation, or the church, or the lack of fruitfulness in your life, and you will always find a dry well to point the finger at when the whole time the Lord has brought you there. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this reality that we often encounter? Notice with me that the people of God, they were not asking God for anything. Notice in verse 2, what do they do? Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. So when people are quarreling with God vertically, they often quarrel with others horizontally. Usually when there's out of alignment vertically, we, we find issue with people out there. And this is the case with the people of Israel, that when their issue, their real quarreling is with God, they find God's servant to blame. They point the finger and say, you give us water to drink. Now this is not an honest question. This is not an honest ask. This is a ridiculous question, for they already know that there are over a million people. Moses has no physical ability on his own to give them anything, but they ask him nonetheless to almost kick dust in his eyes and say, yeah, we've been here before, Moses. Do your thing. We've been here before, Moses. You know, you got that staff over there. Why don't you do something with it? Why don't you be a leader? Why don't you be somebody that you're supposed to be? This is kind of the attitude. They're not asking the Lord as humble, needy people. And this is our propensity as well, that we come into these situations, we come into this thirsty place, and the thirst is real. God has built that in. He hasn't divorced it from our being. We are thirsty people. But instead of going to the Lord with our thirst, what do we do? We go to other people. 
We say, you meet it. Your wife, your spouse, your friends, your church. You will find a million other people to meet your thirst than God. And that is always the problem. You will find a better ministry to meet your thirst. You will find better people to meet your thirst. You will find a better job to meet your thirst. And not that all of those things inherently are wrong and that there are seasons of transition, seasons of change where God leads you from dry places to watered places. We don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, no pun intended. But nonetheless, often, 95% of the time, I would suggest, our issue with the things around us are our issue vertically. And if we don't do business vertically, we're going to always make trouble horizontally. And I'm going to fight with the people in my life. I'm going to quarrel with the people in my life. And this is what the people of God do. They quarrel with Moses. And they say what they've said to him before, give us water to drink. But interestingly enough, Moses, being a godly man, flips it on them and asks them almost a rhetorical question. He says to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? I think this is significant because what Moses does is he responds to them in such a way to get at the heart of the problem. This is often what Jesus would do in his earthly ministry. If you know the Gospels well, you'll quickly encounter Jesus was a master at flipping the script. And not in some manipulative way. The Pharisees and scribes would come to him with this loaded question that had no real answer because their real question was not really on the surface. And Jesus would flip it on him and say, well, what about this? Why not this? Why this or that? And he would kind of turn it around on them to get to the root. And this is what Moses does with wisdom is he takes their demanding, their, their insatiable thirst for water, and he says, well, why are you asking me this? Why are you quarreling with me? So he doesn't fight with them. He doesn't respond to their question even. He flips it around and causes them to ask a self-reflective diagnostic on themselves to get to the root of the problem. And, and I think, brothers and sisters, if we could learn to do this with ourselves, we would save ourselves a lot of trouble. If we could get to the place in life where when we are about to just lose it on our circumstances, we step back and we say, why do I want to do this? What is the inner motivation? Can I be reflective enough and patient enough and humble enough to actually not fight with the thing in front of me and to say, why do I want to fight with this? What is really going on behind the scenes? Why are you thirsty is the real question. Now, I would even suggest further, though the text does not insinuate this, and I don't want to make more of it than it is, but it's my personal opinion that they were actually not without water. How did they get there without water? They had some measure of water, in my opinion. Now, it does not mean that they didn't have water there. I think the text is plain enough. Where they were was barren. But I don't think they were without water. Their thirst was a hypothetical thirst. It was a, a thirst created in their mind before it was actually a reality. And that's often how it is with us. We have situations that are like in the future, they're hypotheticals, they're, they're problems that we foresee in our finite wisdom coming down the road. And we say, you know, three days from now, I'm going to be thirsty. So I better make sure that I deal with that now. In, in a practical sense, there's a measure of wisdom to that kind of thinking. But often it, it subverts us before we get into the day. Jesus says each day has enough trouble of its own. So if we're hypothetically dealing in three days from now, 
We're not drawing upon the resources God's given us today. We're not drawing upon the grace God's given us today because today there is a well that the Lord has given each of us to drink from, his word, his people, prayer, the means of grace. And if we despise those things because we're worried about our thirst three days from now or three years from now, we fall into dangerous territory. We fall into a place of quarrel. So I want to ask a question in light of Moses asking a question to us this morning. What is God using right now as refitum in your life? Can you identify this in your own walk with Jesus? Is there a place that God has sovereignly orchestrated at this moment where you say, man, I'm in refitum. There really is no water here. I'm thirsty. Maybe I'm hungry. I'm tired. I'm worn out. We need to be very careful what we do in our next steps. Because lest we quarrel with God himself, and quarrel with God's people, and quarrel with God's servant, and quarrel with our wives and our husbands, and quarrel with our children, we should stop and say, Lord, why am I here? Why are you here? Why are you here today? Because the Lord has brought you here in his tender mercy. So we need to have Moses' response when we get to these places. And I'm preaching this to myself as much as I'm preaching it to you. We need to cry out to the Lord. That is it. When you come to these places, we need to cry out to the Lord. Moses, in verse 3, But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, this is a refrain that they're going to use often, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. Moses cried to the Lord. That is such a manly response. I want to point that out to you. Now, if I was Moses and hypothetically thinking of how I would want to respond, like maybe you would want to respond, and maybe we do respond when people come to us with these unreasonable questions and say, why did you do this? Or why did you do that? And we want to just kind of like blow up on him. But Moses doesn't do that. He cries to the Lord. That is what delineates a leader from a follower. That is what delineates a man of God from a man of the flesh. Someone who takes his problem, brings it to the throne of grace, and seeks for mercy and help. And this is so uh, corrective for me as it may be for you. The people of Israel are acting like the children who pit their parents against each other. Children can do this, and if it happens in your home, we should snuff it out as quick as it happens. And it's when they're complaining to Moses about their mean, nasty father God who would dare bring them up out of Egypt and cause them to be thirsty. This is sort of the, the whole tone and, and nature of this complaint that they're saying, see Moses, you're like the, the bad mom who brought us up and why don't you go to our bad father and take up this situation with us because, you know, I really want ice cream, but daddy won't let me have it. So maybe if we come to you and complain, we can have it. And it's this kind of psychological manipulation that the people are employing. It's this really corrupt and wicked uh, thing. And they're acting in, very, in a very real measure like kids do. They're acting like children. They're complaining to Moses, but their real issue is with God, their father. And often we do the same. And when we have broken faith and communion with Christ because of unconfessed and unrepentant sin vertically, those closest to us will always be the first to hear about it. 
for our words always reveal our hearts. Whenever I'm out of alignment with the Lord and I'm walking not in the light but in the darkness, guess who hears of it first? My family. Guess who hears of it first? My wife. And it's a terrible position as a leader to put your family in that spot. So we need to be quick when we find ourselves there in our grumbling, in our discontent, in our unholiness to say, Lord, I repent. I want to cry out to you. I want to bring my request before the throne of grace. You know, naturally, when you're tempted to complain and grumble, there's a host of things that you can point the finger to. But again, if we're willing to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, you will find that the problem is often you. And you have not because you have asked not. The children of Israel had no water because they didn't ask for water. You say, well, that's not true. The text says they asked for water. They were asking for a wanton craving. God knows they needed water. It's a human necessity. If your kid came up to you and said, Daddy, I need water, you'd say, no, go find a puddle. I hope you wouldn't say that. God is doing the same thing with his people. He's saying, no, I hope you go find a puddle in the desert. He said, of course he's going to, of course he's going to bring them water. It's, it's a stupid question brought about by the folly of the human heart. But they weren't really asking for water. They were asking for their flesh to be satisfied. I love Psalm 63. It's very helpful in this way. David, King David, finds himself in the desert running from Saul. He's already been anointed king of Israel. This is not how life was supposed to go. Very confusing time for David. He's trying to honor the Lord's anointed in Saul by not killing him, though he had every means to do so. And he's running from Saul. He's hiding in a cave. And this is what he writes. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. He says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. Friends, this is the response that we need to cultivate in our hearts when God brings us to refidims. We say, Lord, I'm in a dry and thirsty place, and I want to complain, and I want to grumble, and I want to hate on people, and I want to hate on God, and I want to do all these wicked things. And God says, no, like David say, my flesh faints for you, O God. In a dry and weary land where there is no water, I have seen you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. And he calls upon God's covenant-keeping love. It's better than life. He says, my lips will praise you. I will bless you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. Is this what marks us as the people of God? This is kind of the faith-filled response that we need to cultivate in our lives. And David, of course, of course, points even in this psalm to a better way, a better David, Jesus himself, who examples it perfectly in the Gospel of Matthew and in Luke chapter 4, as it says, the Spirit of God leads Jesus into the wilderness, leads him into the wilderness, not accidentally. After he's been baptized, the Holy Spirit has come upon him. The Father has said, Behold, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Immediately they go into the wilderness for 40 days. Jesus to be tested of the devil. And each and every test, three tests, similar to the three tests of Israel, he resists the devil's attacks by the word of God. 
So Jesus overcomes in 40 days where his people failed for 40 years. Jesus has overcome for us in the desert because he has gone through the desert. He has passed through the heavens. And Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 and 16 provides a great help to us in these places of thirstiness. He says, Since then, we have a great high priest, Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He understands thirst more than we do. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What a precious promise. What a glorious refuge for the people of God when you are encountering real thirst, real problems, real situations. You say, Lord, I am thirsty. I'm pining away here in the wilderness. You have gone before me. Teach me to go to you to seek grace and mercy and help in time of need. So we see that the people failed to do this. They failed to really draw upon the resources and faithfulness of God. They, they failed to draw upon his covenant kindness. They quarrel with Moses. They do what, sadly, we often do. So Moses calls them out. He responds to their conflict with a question. And now, lastly, we see these themes come together in a profound way. We see that they consume in thankless unbelief. Thankless unbelief, verse 5. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. And he says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. You shall strike the rock. Water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Moses did so in the sight of all the elders of Israel. God tells Moses what would seem a very odd thing, but quite profound, actually, as we see it in light of all of Scripture. God tells Moses that he would stand before him on the rock, that Moses should strike the rock. Water will come out of it for all the people. I want to point out that this rock is a type of Christ. And I would go so far as to say, and we'll prove it from Scripture, that this rock is Christ. Not that the rock himself is Christ, but this rock, as God himself says, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock. It's Christ. How do I know this? How, do I, how can I say such a thing? Because 1 Corinthians chapter 10 really illuminates for us this picture. So I would ask that you turn there to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll conclude the rest of our time in 1 Corinthians 10. This gives us a key interpretive insight into this narrative here that we're reading, without which we would be a little fuzzy. We wouldn't quite know where to go with it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is very insightful and helpful. As Paul is talking to the Corinth church, the church at Corinth, and they're dealing with all kinds of issues, all kinds of dissensions, they're not taking the table of the Lord reverently. They're infighting. It's a mess. And Paul, 1 Corinthians 10, says this in verse 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, 
that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food. Notice this, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. We see that the rock is Christ. When Moses goes with the staff of God in his hand and God says, strike the rock, it is a picture of how Christ, the rock of our salvation, was struck for our iniquities. What came out of Christ when he was struck? Blood and water. Blood and water. Significant of both atonement and cleansing. God would say to all those faithless grumblers, you don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you're consuming in thankless unbelief, but you're actually consuming Christ way back then, and you have no comprehension of it, for I will be struck for your iniquity. I will be struck for your grumbling. I will be struck for your faithless wanton craving, and I will make atonement, and out of my side, blood and water will flow. And not only that, but Jesus at the John chapter 7 said at the, at the great feast of booths, he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of his innermost beings, rivers of living water will flow. And it says that this spoke of the Holy Spirit who would be poured out after his ascension. For Jesus had not yet uh, risen and ascended to the Father. But this rivers of living water would be the outpoured Spirit of God upon his church. Not only that, but he would also say to the woman at the well in the same gospel in chapter 4, uh, as she says, give me this living water. He says, I am the living water. He says, it's me. Come to me. So the, the implication is clear. And as Hebrews eleven six 6 reminds us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So what is happening in the narrative of Exodus is the people are consuming spiritual water without faith. And it is a judgment to them. It is a judgment to them because they are not receiving it in faith. It is a picture of Christ in his atoning work on the cross. It is a picture of the kind of living water that Jesus gives. All who put their faith and trust in him, all who would say, Lord, I'm thirsty. I want a drink of that which will quench my thirst. I don't want the wanton evil desires of the Israelites. I want Christ. God says, I will give him to you freely by faith as you trust me. But the people of Israel here in Exodus don't combine this drinking with faith. They combine it with unbelief. They drink of Christ without faith. Say, how can that be? Well, they drink judgment to themselves. They do what we ought not to do at the communion table as we take of the Lord's sacrament. And we come in an unworthy manner. We drink of the Lord in an unworthy manner. This is what they do. They judge themselves as unworthy recipients of the free offer of living water. Isaiah 55 says this as we close here. 
Come, in verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. God says, if you want to drink deeply and not be thirsty, come to Christ. So Paul would go on to say in this same chapter in 1 Corinthians, he says, Nevertheless, with most of them in verse 5, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Why? Because of their unbelief. He says, These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. But notice this. They were written down for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. That ends of the ages not only signifies the last days, but it signifies the end of the Judaic era. The old covenant in all of its ritual and ceremony fulfilled in the Lamb of God says the end of the ages has come. That's why Hebrews says in the last days God has spoken in His Son. So to reject this offer of free grace from Jesus Christ, the fount of living water, is in the end of the ages to say He's not enough. I want something else. I'm going to go back to my want and craving. And he's making a point to his Jewish audience to say, do not go backwards. Christ is the end of your thirst. And the end of the ages have fallen upon you. And he has spoken in these last days to you. He says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. But then he balms it with this. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. He says, and underline this, God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. The question is straightforward enough. How do I possibly flee from idolatry? How do I possibly evade the pit that these Israelites find themselves in? When I often find myself prone to grumbling, to faithless disobedience, how do I flee from it? I think the exhortation in charge is very straightforward. Run to Christ. How do you flee idolatry? You run to the rock. You run to Jesus Christ. You say, Lord, take my idolatrous, wicked heart, melt it. I surrender it to you. I give it to you. You are the answer to my thirst. And if you are a believer here, that is what you do daily. If you are not in Christ, you turn from your sin, you repent of your sin, you call on the Lord for today is the day of salvation. Say, Lord, 
you are my God, you are my Lord. I believe that you are the Son of God, that you died and rose again for sin, made substitutionary atonement on my behalf, and you rose from the dead three days later, according to the Scriptures, you ascended to the Father, and you are the only way to the Father, the way, the truth, and the life, and I repent of my sin, and I call upon the name of Jesus, and the Lord says, you will be saved. And if you are a child of God, you actively repent every single day from your idolatrous ways. And you say, Lord, keep me in the light. I want to flee from idolatry by fleeing to Christ. There is no neutrality. You will not flee from idolatry if you stay in the middle. You must run to something else. And the exhortation is clear. Run to Jesus Christ. He is your way of escape. He is your way of escape. Sadly, all the way back in Exodus, and we'll close now. Sadly, their final response to this drinking of the waters of life in an unholy manner is to say, and this is where all gets revealed in verse 7, Moses calls the place Massa and Meribah, which means testing and quarreling in that order, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord. And this, at the end of it all, was the true motivation of their heart. They were not thirsty for water. Their complaint was this, is the Lord among us or not? How can they say such a thing after all that they've seen? But brothers and sisters, how can we say such a thing in light of all that we've seen? in light of all that Christ is, in light of all that Christ has promised, that he will never leave us nor forsake us, how can we say such a thing to God, to spit in his face and say, Lord, are you really with us? Did you really bring me to this refidim? Is this really you? Now, I've had those wrestlings, and I think many of you have, and I want to repent in dust and ashes for ever saying to the Lord, are you among us or not? Because he has promised, and he is a man of his word. So don't doubt the Lord Jesus we want to close in Hebrews chapter 3, very familiar to most of us, but very important as we consider these things. Hebrews chapter 3 reminds us of the need to trust Christ. And in chapter 3, I'm just going to read it to you, and we'll close. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. One of those things, Christ. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my work for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? but to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. I love the end of that song I quoted at the beginning of the sermon, and I want to conclude with the last stanza of it. I'm so glad I learned to trust him, precious Jesus, Savior friend, and I know that he is with me and will be with me to the end. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Father, we stand before you as your chosen people, and Lord, we, we repent over our faithless grumbling. We repent of not recognizing your way, not recognizing your goodness, your kindness, your mercy, Lord. And inasmuch as your mercy over our lives has brought us to a place of maturity where we can respond to these thirsty situations with the right response, Lord, let it ever be that way. Let us be a people who hold fast our confession to the end. Let us not waver in unbelief, but as Abraham did. He grew stronger in faith, knowing that you would accomplish your word. Father, let us be marked not like the Israelites by faithless rebellion, but with a cheerful heart, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. Say, Lord, we have drunk deeply of Christ, and he is the source of living water. We will drink deeply unto the day of eternity, Lord. You will always be sufficient. You will always be enough. And Lord, Mend our hearts, correct us, strengthen us, refresh us, for it's all for your glory. And we thank you that Jesus is the one who has gone before us and has succeeded where we have failed. And we rest in his righteousness this morning. We rest in the surety of his promise and in the greatness of the gospel that you have called sinners like us unto yourself and are fit in fashioning us for the day of glory. Continue what you have begun, and we commit it all to you in Jesus' name. Amen.